Don Alejo Garza Tamez was a proud Norteño. He was born in Allende, in the Mexican state of Nuevo Leon, in 1933. He began fishing and hunting as a child. As a young man, he began to collect weapons, and among his friends and associates, he was known as an excellent shooter who hunted deer, geese, and pigeons. Don Alejo Garza Tamez founded a shooting club in his hometown in his lifetime of work. Don Alejo built his own ranch, which he named San Jose. He intended to live there for the rest of his days, as indeed he did. On the morning of Saturday, November 13, 2010, Don Alejo Garza Tamez was 77 years old. On that morning, a group of armed cartel gunmen went to deliver an ultimatum to Don Alejo. He had 24 hours to turn over his property and his life's work to the local cartel or suffer the consequences. Don Alejo responded boldly, not only would he not be surrendering his property, but that he'd be waiting for them when he came. When the cartel men had left, Don Alejo gathered his ranch workers and ordered them to take Sunday off. He wanted to be alone. He dedicated the rest of that Saturday to taking stock of his weapons and ammunition and creating a military, fortress-style defense strategy for his home. Sunday morning, Don Alejo woke early. Shortly after 4 a.m., the motors of various trucks could be heard entering the property from a distance. The Mexican Marines who later investigated the scene could only imagine how it was that morning. Armed men, confident that they'd soon be owners of yet another stolen property. The trucks entered the ranch and took up positions surrounding the house. The gunmen got out of their trucks, fired shots in the air, and announced that they had come to take possession of San Jose. They were expecting the terrified Don Alejo to run out begging for mercy. Instead, Don Alejo welcomed them with bullets. The entire army of gunmen returned fire. Don Alejo seemed to multiply. He seemed to be everywhere. The minutes would have seemed endless to those who had seen him as easy prey. Various gunmen were killed on sight. The others, in rage and frustration, intensified the attack by swapping out their assault rifles for grenade launchers. When everything finally fell silent, the air was left heavy with gunpowder. The holes left in the walls and windows attested to the violence of the attack. When the gunmen went in search of what they had assumed was a large contingent of defenders, they were surprised to find the body of only one man, Don Alejo. The surviving Sicarios decided to run. They left behind six of their own and the body of one hero. A lone rancher, a man who had worked a lifetime to be able to enjoy the fruits of his labor, had defended it to his death. In the final hunt of his life, Don Alejo surprised the assassins who wanted to impose the same law on his ranch that they had upon the Mexican state, the law of the jungle. The Mexican Marines who were present after the fact will never forget the scene, a 77-year-old man who before death took out six gunmen, fighting the same as the best soldiers, with dignity, courage, and honor. Rest in peace, Don Alejo Garza Tamez. That is from a November 22nd, 2010 posting at the Borderland Beat blog from a reporter calling himself Overmex. This is The Hard Country. I'm Joshua Trevino. Josh, thank you so much for sharing that incredible story. And thank you for everyone that's listening. As Josh said, this is Hard Country. My name is Melissa Ford. I am a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And I'm, jo- I'm joined by Joshua Trevino, who is the foundation's chief of intelligence and research. So, Josh, thanks again for that story. That is a fascinating story about, I believe, a 77-year-old Mexican rancher. Yeah. And he, after working his whole life just to enjoy the fruit of his labor, he had to die defending his property, something that he worked so hard for after he was basically given an ultimatum to surrender his land from cartel gunmen. So my question for you is, this took place over 12 years ago. It took place in Mexico. So how is this relevant to us today, especially those of us that are living in the United States? Yeah, uh, great question. And Melissa, what a pleasure it is to be joined by you uh, in this. Look, you know, the, the, the story of Don Alejo, I think, is, is, is an incredible one. Mm-hmm. And the thing to understand about it, in addition to the, the virtues that he shows, and even as Americans, 
we can understand that uh, this is an individual who possesses the civic virtues in full, um, uh, a respect and reverence for law, um, especially the fundamental laws of property and self-defense uh, that he exemplified. We have to expect that there are many more stories like his that we just don't know. Um, the north of Mexico is qualitatively distinct from the rest of the country. Uh, this population of Norteños uh, came out of uh, historically a um, sort of a founding stock population that originally uh, settled in what's now kind of the Mexican heartland. So you're mm -hmm. talking about the Valley of Mexico and, and adjacent states um, and pushed north starting in the last half of the 16th century um, and really completing its settlement of northern Mexico with uh, Jose de Escondón and the settlement of Nuevo Santander after 1750. And there is a very interesting um, kind of characteristic of this population uh, that they tend to be somewhat different than the rest of the Mexican population. Uh, much more um, traditionalist Catholic versus kind of in the south you have more of this, this uh, syncretist Catholic population. Um, uh, you also have much more of this ranchero population. Uh, mm -hmm. And so kind of an American analog to it would be the difference, for example, between Virginia Cavaliers versus, uh, say, Marylanders, who tended to be a little bit more pastorally oriented. So what that, what that ends up uh, showing is that you get these two qualities that really show forth in the story of, of, of Don Alejo. One is um, uh, this ungovernability of the North uh, that I think can be overstated uh, a little bit because obviously we've seen a lot of Mexico, particularly in the past generation, become fundamentally ungovernable. Uh, I don't think anybody would accuse the residents, for example, of Jalisco or Michoacan or to a lesser extent Sinaloa, which is kind of in the mid-range of, of being uh, your classic Norteños. They're simply mm -hmm. in the wrong place. But at the same time, um, there's a reason that uh, folk heroes coming out of northern Mexico tend to be individuals like, um, you know, General Pancho Villa, uh, who occupies a particular place in U.S. Uh, civic mythos, but a very different one, uh, him and his, his uh, División del Norte uh, in the Revolutionary Era and the Mexican uh, kind of civic pantheon. Um, but concurrent with that, concurrent with the ungovernability is, uh, is the extraordinary um, uh, focus among dignity and defense that you see exemplified in a guy like Don Alejo. If the cartels and the gunmen were one expression of kind of Norteño civic inheritance, then Don Alejo is uh, an expression of something very similar, but different because it is intrinsically virtuous. The defense of himself and his work and his property uh, that unfortunately resulted in his death. So as we look at stories like this, one of the reasons that I picked this story, uh, and we're going to be talking a lot about in this podcast and later on and kind of in the work that you and I do at the foundation on Mexican civic dysfunction and kind of what's happening with the breakdown of the Mexican state, all of which is true. But we have to understand that underlying all of it is a society and a culture uh, that, is, um, uh, that, that possesses all the keys necessary to fight and defeat all the evil things that are happening into it now. And a guy like Don Alejo is a superb example of that. He's also an example of the only thing that will eventually solve Mexico's problems, which is Mexico's, Mexicans themselves. So speaking of the evil things that we have seen, just like you were referring to these cartels, their operatives, the terrible things that we have always seen as happening beyond the border, mm -hmm. we're seeing it happen now at the border. We're seeing cartels, Every day, we hear new reports about cartels, their operatives, basically massacring innocent people at the border. And what's scary uh, is that we're seeing our police, our military, our people at the border are completely unmatched. They're outgunned, um, they're outmanned, and that's what we're seeing at the border. So I want to ask you, I'm not an expert, but I think that's a very bad sign where we have our authorities being outgunned, outmanned. So what do you think that that means for us and what can we do? Yeah, great question. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you two, two, two answers to it, uh, which sounds very political, but uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in the interest of, of kind of the fullness of the meaning here that we have to uncover. Um, uh, look, th this is not the first time that Mexico has been in a place like this. Mm -hmm. uh, Mexico throughout its, uh, you know, we're basically at 200 years of independence uh, from Mexico. And it's been, I think it's safe to say, although Mexico itself, uh, I'm very proud to be of Mexican descent, uh, but at the same time as a polity, 
Um, uh, the Mexican story has been, unfortunately, a very unhappy one. And it's been unhappy uh, often for reasons that are not, uh, you know, not Mexico's fault. Uh, you know, the Mexicans did not choose to be invaded uh, by, by various countries. Uh, the French in the 1860s certainly were, were not something that I think the Mexican civic polity chose. Um, but the other reason is uh, this sort of push-pull between centralization and, um, uh, depending on the era that you're in, federalization or decentralization um, or even separatism that has kind of afflicted the Mexican state. And uh, right now, uh, you know, we're coming off of essentially a century, uh, more or less post the 1920-1930 period, mm -hmm. in which the Mexican state is extraordinarily centralized. It starts to open up in uh, summer 2000 with the election of the first non-free president of Mexico um, uh, in, in the entire post-revolutionary era. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm overstating it a bit. The PRI doesn't come into formal existence until mm -hmm. about 20 years after the revolution, but you get my meaning. Um, uh, and then, unfortunately, concurrent with that in the, in the intervening now 23 years uh, is, that, uh, is that we've seen this sort of, um, this sort of uh, disintegration of the Mexican state. And if 100 years ago it took the form of kind of local warlords and, uh, you know, individual sort of, um, uh, you know, kind of, kind of communal quasi-separatists, depending on who you're talking about, now it's taking much more the, uh, much more the face of these transnational criminal cartels. Uh, and, and we should understand that very clearly because they're not just trafficking organizations. They're not just mafia-type organizations. These are organizations that frequently, in many cases, actually do give expression uh, to a sense of community. There was something very interesting that I saw in the news. I think this was reported. It was either in El País, or, 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 which is a Spanish newspaper with a very good Mexican edition. Um, but this might have been in Reforma, so the, uh, the, the listener, the viewer can uh, check that out. Um, uh, but uh, when, when the youngest Chapito was captured uh, mm -hmm. earlier in, in January, so we're recording right now at the tail end of January, um, uh, the, 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 the Mexican army, uh, the Mexican state, uh, Sedena, uh, so mm -hmm. which is the Secretario, sorry, your Spanish is, is, is much better than mine. Secretaria de Defensa Nacional, uh -huh. uh, is correct? Okay, good. Um, uh, they, 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 had to, they, they had to fight the Sinaloan cartels to get this, uh, this young Chapito out. It's a guy named, uh, uh, um, it's uh, Ovidio Guzman, and um, who's reputedly the least important of the Chapitos. But they got him, they captured him, they took him out. It set off several days of rolling uh, battles. Uh, and so that itself wasn't, wasn't necessarily new. Uh, it's notable that it happened. But the notable phenomenon that I saw reported in press, particularly uh, in, in, in this one news report, had to do with the Army's attempt at following up. And so there was, there was this very interesting, and, and I wish that uh, U.S. press was more alert to this um, because it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's an angle of what's happening in Mexico that I don't think is well covered. Um, uh, the army tried to come in basically with, with uh, I think, what in, in kind of a U.S. context would be like a, um, like a civil reconstruction team. And so they, mm -hmm. so they had like food and they were offering to repair um, uh, you know, combat damage and so on. And uh, the response of the local population, uh, particularly in this one town where a video was captured, uh, was to completely reject uh, all of this help. So, so, so you would you would assume, I think, if you adhere to kind of the traditional narrative, that the locals um, would be, they would kind of be groaning under the heel of this local cartel, and um, and then terrorized by the violence that it brings. And then if the army comes, then then their reaction would be, you know, oh, it's it's our army, it's our state. Go ahead and stay. Completely not what happened. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead, what you saw in, in in these news reports was that uh, it was that the local citizenry, upon being approached by Mexican army personnel. Um, uh, rejected the help that they were offered and told the army to get out. We don't want you here. We don't need you here. Um, you know, we reject your aid. We reject your presence, uh, and so on. And, and and that to me sets off the light bulb that there's a lot more in common with the current um, uh, cartel phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, versus versus you know previous episodes of kind of Mexican state disintegration than I think is commonly understood. When you have a phenomenon like that, where the local population uh, that's putatively, putatively under the rule and sovereignty, uh, which I think is 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 an accurate description of of these um, these TNCOs, basically like the like the Sinaloa cartel or you know name any other cartel that you want, and when given an opportunity and safety to kind of voice their real opinions, turn out to be uh, in opposition to the state, that's an insurgency situation. That's a situation in which the state has more problems with legitimacy than does the actual cartel that the state is 
putatively fighting. Now, the state isn't actually fighting it. We can talk a little bit about that all the mm -hmm. way. To kind of circle back to your original question, I'm sorry, this is very long-winded, but <laughs> good news. We have like an hour podcast to fill. Uh, uh, you know, as, as far as what's happening on the U.S. side of the border, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think the thing to understand that everything that's happening at the U.S. side of the border in terms of our efforts is a positive choice that's being made. Now, unfortunately, that positive choice is made almost entirely in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. We do see efforts by the state government, uh, especially here in Texas, to do the right thing. Uh, and they deserve, um, uh, you know, the decision makers deserve our support and praise for that. But ultimately, a federal responsibility. And, a, uh, you know, we, we have to understand that, uh, that Washington, D.C., writ large, has not had the current state of affairs forced upon them. They have chosen to embrace for reasons all their own, you know, we can't read minds, uh, we can surmise what they might be, but they've chosen to have the state of affairs pertain. So if our personnel are outnumbered, um, uh, if, as is actually the case, we've had uh, likely several million, and nobody knows exactly the number, but several million, largest ever um, illegal entry into the United States in the past calendar year, um, then, then uh, it, it is because we've chosen to embrace that. We've chosen to let that happen. And so part of our work is uh, discerning why that choice is being made and um, educating policymakers in particular to make different and better choices. Absolutely. And I agree. There's no denying that this is the federal government's job. They have a vast amount of resources. And honestly, they have a constitutionally assigned responsibility to protect our borders, to protect absolutely. not just Americans, but Texans. And I absolutely agree with you that they're not doing their job and that we are seeing record numbers of bad, negative things coming in through the border. So we're seeing everything from record numbers of, of drugs, uh, human trafficking, mm -hmm. dirty money, uh, all sorts of things. But one thing that is often not talked about that I want to bring up is reports that there's also negative things going from the U.S. to Mexico. So one of those things, I want to read you a statistic here. Um, Mexico's Foreign Affairs Secretary, Marcelo Ebrard, mm -hmm. recently said that about 60 to 70 percent of the weapons that are seized in Mexico or that have been seized in Mexico in recent years can be traced back to the U.S. Sure. So the reason this guns phenomenon going from the U.S. to Mexico is so interesting is because on one hand, you can understand that people in Mexico are demanding drugs because of this unprecedented this unprecedented level of violence that we're seeing in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar in Bolivia, where I come from. It's very hard to get access to guns. Yeah. It's pretty much distributed by the government. And so in Mexico, you see that it's very difficult for civilians to get access to guns. So you can understand that demand that they have. Now, on the other hand, this is kind of a big accusation that maybe the U.S. is has a part in in this problem that we're seeing with so much violence in Mexico and right. maybe has a bit of responsibility in arming these cartels that are causing such chaos in Mexico. Yeah. So how would you respond to these claims that maybe we have a shared responsibility for the disaster that's happening? In, in so so in Mexico there is there there is a single legal gun shop in Mexico City that the, mm -hmm. the, that the state runs. Is, is is that the is that how it works in Bolivia too? Is it like one is like a like a one gun shop in La Paz that you that you have to go to to get uh, legal firearms or how does it work? I I don't know if there's one, but I do know like. I've not met anyone that has guns unless they're in the military. Interesting. So it's very, very hard to get access to it. Next time you go there, uh, uh, tell me what the yeah, firearm purchase. I'll, I'll uh, I, I'd, yeah. I'd be very curious. Not that I'm uh, going to take guns down to Bolivia, um, <laughs> uh, which sounds like a Sundance Kid thing. Look, the uh, uh, I, I have been in meetings um, uh, directly with with uh, Mexican government officials in which this has been this has been raised. How can we? I'll paraphrase, but uh, you know, how can we possibly fight the cartels when it's it's the United States arming them? Mm. And then, and then this flow of weaponry uh, south of the border is invoked. Uh, we have to parse that out. Uh, it's, it is 100% correct and true that there are firearms coming from the United States uh, into Mexico, uh, where I think uh, Mexican officialdom um, is performing a bit of a sleight of hand uh, is in blaming the efficacy of the cartels. Uh, on this flow of firearms. And so what what I was told directly uh, in, in, in one of the meetings that we had in Mexico City uh, was that, um, that the cartels actually outgunned Mexican police and military because of these, uh, of, of, of these U.S. arms, which is completely false. 
oh. uh, you know, we, we, we have to distinguish between legal and, and, and illegal traffic. Um, uh, the cartels do frequently outgun the state. Uh, not always. I don't think, I don't think the cartels are quite at the, uh, quite at the point where they could win against the Mexican army, but, um, uh, against, against, you know, Guardia, Guardia Nacional or, uh, local police or things. Yes, they are there. But the reason that they're there, the reason that, uh, that they're at that level is not because of any legally obtainable firearms in the United States. When you look at the at the weaponry and the material that cartels are able to bring to the battlefield, uh, and I use that term deliberately, the battlefield, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking um, automatic weapons, 50 cals. Uh, there's a nascent anti-air capability that they've demonstrated in some cases, especially in Sinaloa. Um, uh, they've got very advanced uh, use of, 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 uh, of drones, which they've used to a mm-hmm. limited extent in some combat situations. Um, there are these ersatz infantry fighting vehicles that they have. Mm-hmm. And so all of it combining together, uh, you know, is, is something far beyond what's available uh, on the U.S. civilian market. It's just not the case that here in the United States, you can get, uh, you know, like this, like like what they call a technical on the Sahel, a Toyota Hilux with with, with a 50 cal mounted on the back. Uh, that's not that's not the case. That's the qualitative edge, and that's the combat edge in terms of equipment for Mexican cartels. And if that is coming from the United States, which I think is a pretty big if, um, because nobody has quite a view on it, but let's accept for the sake of argument that it is. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't believe it, but let's accept that it is. That's already illegal. And that's already something that the uh, the full, you know, kind of weight and authority of the federal government on our side of the border Mm -hmm. is working against. So it doesn't ring true that it's the flow of American guns south that are responsible for Mexican cartels outgunning and um, kind of, you know, outcompeting the formal Mexican state. Uh, if that were solely causative, of course, you would see the exact same thing unfolding on the U.S. side, which right. you do not. So, so, so clearly there are issues here with um, uh, civil society and civic culture. Um, that's one thing. Uh, but the other thing that we have to understand is that many elements of the Mexican state, including the current federal government, um, uh, work with the cartels uh, mm-hmm. often. There is a well-known um, uh, kind of quasi-alliance. You know, I talked about the, uh, the 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 arrest of, of the junior Chapito Ovidio, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, you know, about thirty days back. Um, uh, that's very interesting because it comes in the context of a lot of of kind of known. Nobody go on the record with it, but it's it, it's sort of a known thing in Mexico mm-hmm. that that same cartel, the Sinaloans, has been lending a hand to the Mexican ruling coalition, the Morena coalition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, what, what would I point to first uh, if I had to, you know, rank order the causes of Mexican state breakdown? Um, you know, at the top at the top of the list would be um, uh, the irresponsibility, frankly, of, of Mexican civic elites. Um, not not an absence of virtue uh, on the general people of Mexico who are you know who are you know industrious and uh, have survived things that uh, you know that we should thank God that we haven't had to here. Um, but these elites, uh, in many cases, uh, do not feel the sense of stewardship that an elite ought to. It's something that mm. the Tocqueville would have recognized immediately. Um, and that, 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 I think, would be at the top of the list. And then you would have to go down to um, you know, what we talked about a little bit earlier, which is these, the, these kind of forces of localism that find expression um, in supporting alternative power centers. Uh, you would have to go pretty far down until you hit U.S. guns. Uh, which in terms of the legal traffic, and when, when I say legal, by the way, I don't mean legally imported into Mexico because it's almost impossible to do mm-hmm. that. Any of us who have gone to the Mexican border on foot have seen the signs everywhere. It says, don't bring guns into Mexico. Right. It's good advice to follow because I guarantee you that uh, if you do bring a gun into Mexico uh, and they find you, you will be in jail essentially forever, um, which you don't want. Uh, but uh, uh, you know anything that's legally obtainable in the United States is, is, is simply not a significant cause, in my estimation, um, of, of, of Mexican dysfunction. But let, let, let me make two final points uh, on this. The reason that you hear it from the Mexican side is because it is an opportunity to deflect. It's an opportunity to deflect against real responsibility um, uh, that, that, that reposes there, not in us, but, but, but in them, to exercise full sovereignty over their country. Um, uh, and, and, and the other reason it has purchase, unfortunately, is because it plays directly into a gun control narrative, an anti-Second Amendment narrative uh, that right now is very much favored uh, in, uh, in the White House. And so when you see, for example, the Three Amigos meeting that uh, went down 10-ish days ago, maybe mm-hmm. 10, 14 days ago in Mexico City, uh, President Biden is more than happy 
to, uh, to uh, endorse this narrative, even though it's objectively not true, specifically because it advances a domestic political narrative here in the United States that um, he finds amenable. Mm. That regardless of where the guns are coming from, what you mentioned, and thank you for your very important perspective, what you mentioned is terrifying, but that's something that we're up against. And so on that topic, uh, before we move on to the Mexican state breakdown and U.S.-Mexico cooperation, sure. uh, I wanted to take advantage of this time to read you a passage out of our former U.S. Secretary of State and former CIA director's book, Mike Pompeo. Sure. Uh, the book is called Never Give an Inch. And in this pa passage, he's going to be talking about how the hard work of deterrence must happen before a crisis Please. and not during or after. So I'm going to read you a quote, and it says, Now that I'm out of office, I frequently get asked things such as, what would you do if China invaded Taiwan, or should the Biden administration bomb Moscow? What these questions miss is that the hard work of deterrence must happen before a crisis. You can't fix that failure to prepare after the crisis has begun. So what I want to ask you is, we're clearly, by your previous question, by our conversation so far, this crisis is already here. It's already happening. So what I want to know is, do you think it's too late to act? Uh, what can still be done? No, it, it's never too late to act. It's never too late uh, to do the right thing. Uh, the only wrong thing to do is to leave it to tomorrow. Um, uh, but if you choose to act today, then uh, then you're, you're a jump ahead. Yes, I wish that uh, this had been taken seriously in 2006, which is uh, mm. commonly accepted as kind of the modern Mexican drug war being kicked off. Um, but uh, it's it's now 2023, and the imperative uh, to do so is even greater. So we should we should as Americans, we should never adopt a position of fatalism. There's always something we can do. Yes, absolutely. We can still act and prevent Mexico from getting more lawless than maybe it is, and that's why I want to go back to an original thing that you mentioned, Please. which is you use the word ungoverned or under governed mm -hmm. uh, to describe some of the spaces on our border. Sure. And since we're on the topic of Pompeo's book, I also want to take advantage to read another passage where he discusses this challenge that he faced when he was director of the CIA. And so I don't know about you, but a lot of the time when I think about these undergoverned spaces or ungoverned spaces, I think about a faraway land um, where we're seeing this like Al-Qaeda, uh, the yeah. Middle East. I, I don't really think about anything that close to the U.S., and that's a privilege. But um, in this book, uh, Mike Pompeo, he talks about how there's lawless zones right near the, the U.S.-Mexico border. Yeah. And, you know, that's really scary, like right near El Paso and much closer than we would think. And so I want to read something out of Pompeo's book, and it says this. Significant parts of Mexico are no longer policed by the central government. The Washington Post has reported comments from several current and former U.S. officials, concluding that drug trafficking groups now control a significant portion of Mexican territory. Their entire well-armed militia forces, the private armies of Mexican criminal syndicates that impose their gangland rule without government interference. Just as ISIS could resemble a civil government inside its own terror state, the drug cartels act as a civil authority in cities and towns under their control. So this is really scary stuff. Um, but Josh, basically, these ungoverned spaces, I think, could provide safe havens, um, basically breeding grounds for terrorist activity so close to Texas, so close to the U.S., um, and we've known that Mexican cartels, and he talks about this in his book, Mexican cartels are known to have contact with jihadist groups and Hezbollah through the international arms and drug trades. So my question is, do you think it's possible that some of these Mexican drug lords, some of these Mexican gangs could be inviting some of these terrorist groups right next door if the counterterrorism activity gets too too difficult to bear maybe in the Middle East? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, great question. It's the right question to ask. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're citing uh, Secretary Pompeo's book, by the way. It's, uh, it's Never Given an Inch. It's a very good memoir. Uh, downloaded it last week, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a great read. So everybody, everybody ought to read it, uh, yeah. and I'm glad that you have. Uh, he, he's, he's correct in his concern. 
um, uh, Christopher Landau, who was uh, the ambassador to um, uh, mm -hmm. Mexico City, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico under Trump, uh, said publicly, I guess about a year ago, that uh, the Mexican state has surrendered about 30 to 40 percent mm -hmm. of its territory to the sovereignty of the cartels. Uh, and he's largely correct about that. There was a lot of pushback from kind of Mexican officialdom, um, but uh, it wasn't persuasive pushback. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll put it that way. You know, when we look at these ungoverned spaces, which are which, which are real, right? So, the, so, so we're talking about spaces where the writ of the state no longer runs, uh, and they do tend to cluster near the U.S.-Mexico border for obvious reasons, right? Because that's where the, 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 the traffic has to flow, whether it's in people or illicit substances or anything else. And, and by the way, the cartels are also involved in mm -hmm. quote-unquote legal trade, too. Uh, there have been a series of wars over the, um, the lime fields out in Michoacan and kind of the mm -hmm. avocado-growing region. So it's yeah. almost anything that it touches at this point. You have to always be alert to the possibility, and in the long term, given sufficient time, the probability that uh, things are going to take root there uh, that uh, that you don't necessarily want. So in addition to kind of the criminal and cartel activity, uh, it's not irrational to worry about um, uh, kind of what we think of as, as more uh, traditional is probably not the right word, but uh, more commonly assumed terror activities, whether it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS or so on. What I can tell you is that uh, it is not uncommon uh, to encounter, um, encounter is kind of the term of art that gets used with the Border Patrol and so on, to encounter people trying to enter illegally who turn out to be um, uh, either from regions where there's known terrorist activity mm -hmm. or individuals who I believe are actually on on terror, terror watch lists. Watch list, yeah. uh, and, and look, it's very easy to cross a lot of this border. Uh, it's easy to do so accidentally. It's easy to do so effectively unmonitored. Um, I've spent a lot of time out in Presidio County, Texas, which is sort of the Big Bend region, um, uh, very much unpoliced versus the vastness of the area. Uh, and I can tell you firsthand, you can there are, there are uh, points there where the Rio Grande is literally a dry ditch, and you can jump across it uh, and walk into one country or the other. I may have done that on accident on one uh, on on one occasion, but uh, uh, quickly corrected uh, the mistake. Uh, so 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 yeah, it, it is something that we have to be aware of. Now, you know, kind of the counter argument to that is that the cartels at large are you know rational organizations within the context of their operations, and so they would never allow that to happen. I think there is something to that. Um, it's very difficult to uh, think of, um, uh, you know, name your cartel, uh, uh, you know, the cartel del Noreste, for example, mm -hmm. deciding that it's worth bringing down kind of the might of the United States government on their heads by harboring ISIS openly. That's not really the risk to me. Uh, what, what I think the risk is that, um, that, this, the, that this harboring and this facilitation would be incidental to the disorder uh, and the ungovernedness that they cause, if I can mm -hmm. coin a term. And that's something that we always have to be aware of. Bottom line is this. Uh, anytime you've got a space that doesn't have effective governance, that doesn't have effective sovereignty, um, you don't know what's going to rush into that vacuum. Uh, and this this brings us to uh, what I think is the kind of the prime strategic aim of the United States, what ought to be the focus of our policy, uh, which, you know, contrary to a lot of the sort of what I'll describe as the fever dreams of some of the some of the Mexican kind of nationalists left out there is that we want a strong and sovereign Mexican state. We want a Mexican state that is in 100 percent control of all of Mexico. Uh, you know, the goal of our policy um, uh, and, and I want to get back to this uh, momentarily because it's something important that you mentioned earlier. The goal of our policy ought to be to support that in whatever way we can. Uh, I'll push back a little bit against something you said earlier. Uh, we can't fix Mexico, uh, nor, nor ought we have the hubris uh, to try to do it. Uh, it's simply not within our power. Mexico is its own place um, of, uh, I think, what, 125 million uh, individuals, you know, give or take at this point. That, yeah. uh, but it's a gigantic country, uh, a robust country. It has its own agency, its own culture, its own civics. Um, so we can't fix it. The idea mm -hmm. that we could swoop in and, and, and make it us mm -hmm. uh, is, is uh, it would bring more disaster, I think, than, than anything else. But what we can do is we can exercise our own agency and our own prerogatives. And first of all, you know, the proper base of policymaking should be what's right for us on our end. The second thing that we can do is we can create a structure of incentives. Uh, and we can incentivize actors within Mexican civil society, within the Mexican state, to start doing the right thing. Um, partly because it benefits them, which it will, um, but mostly because uh, it, it, it benefits us. Uh, and I don't think that should, should be a radical proposition uh, at this point. Um, uh, I think that if we did that, we would find that we have more friends in Mexico 
than we might necessarily anticipate. And that's all for the good. Absolutely. And I think it seems very crazy when you say it first to think, uh, but it's not that far-fetched to think that Mexico, these ungoverned spaces in Mexico could become like a, a launching pad for terrorist activity to come into the U.S. And I apologize for not having the most recent numbers, but I think I saw last week that they came out with a new number of people that are on the terror watch list that were interrogated trying to come in through Mexico mm -hmm. to the U.S. And the number has just gone up so dramatically. I believe that when we had more border security under Trump, it was like 10 a year that we're being interrogated, which is very scary. But I think now we've reached the 90s and I have to look at that stat. But it was just shocking to see. And then you also touched on, which we can start heading in the direction of U.S.-Mexico policy. But you said we can't fix Mexico. And I totally agree. But so many of us want to see us working more with Mexico. Yeah. They are not our enemy. Um, we want them to be our allies in this fight against so many things that are happening in Mexico with cartels and corruption. Um, we don't see them as our enemies. We, we want them to be our allies. And so what I want to ask you is in these past couple of years, mm -hmm. we have seen pretty much an end to the cooperation of Mexico with us in the U.S. Yeah. And what does that look like? I kind of want you to go into some of the specifics of what that's looked like in previous years, what that's looked like now with the new administration? Yeah, yeah. Uh, great question uh, and an expansive topic, uh, too. Yeah. You know, you have to you have to divide modern Mexican cooperation with the United States and security matters into basically three three phases corresponding with the three presidents. Um, so you had Felipe Calderon mm -hmm. from 2006 to 2012. You had Enrique Peña Nieto from 12 to 18. And then right now we are in the presidency of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, who goes by AMLO, his initials. Mm -hmm. Uh, from 2018 onward, uh, and, and by the way, for their, uh, you know viewers who don't know, um, uh, Mexican presidents may not be reelected. So no reelection was one of the fundamental principles of the Mexican Revolution that kicked off uh, circa 1910, and it, it persists to this day. So each one has a six-year term. They call it the sexenio, and that's what they get to um, uh, implement their policy. Uh, I'll oversimplify a little bit just for benefit of time, but you know. Calderon uh, uh, was 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 great uh, in in uh, he, he he was a failure in some other respects you mm -hmm. know not not least because the violence uh, really kind of the modern violence kicked off under his yeah. term and was was never really effectively controlled but what he was good at um, was cooperating with the United States and so when you looked at the end of the Calderon administration um, you had a pretty robust uh, uh, it wasn't quite Plan Colombia style but it was it was something similar to it, the Merida initiative um, in which there was uh, you know sharing of of uh, kind of equipment and intelligence, and the United States was allowed to operate signals intelligence stations within Mexico. Um, the United States was allowed to uh, to vet um, uh, kind of senior appointees uh, within the Mexican security um, apparatus, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so all of that helped. None of it was a panacea, but all of it helped uh, not only to um, you know make Mexican efforts better, but also to generate a sense of cooperation with the United States. There's also a lot of evidence, uh, and I don't think any of this has become public, um, uh, but you can kind of comb back through uh, news stories, uh, and there was a flurry between about 2010 to 2012. There was a flurry of um, these very strange kind of Mexican armed forces entry into the United States. Uh, that would get picked up uh, by local forces. My, my theory, which I think which is an informed theory because it actually has happened before, is that under Calderon, uh, we were allowing Mexican forces to base out of South Texas to launch raids back into Mexico. It actually happened before, the way um, in which uh, uh, Zorro de Ojinaga was killed um, in, uh, I forget the year, but I believe the late 1980s, mm -hmm. was actually ba it was, it was a raid that came out of the United States and, uh, and uh, went into um, northern Mexico. So, so, so when you got to December 2012, which is when Peña Nieto takes over as president, you have this, you have this picture of this very robust U.S.-Mexican security cooperation. Mm -hmm. And Peña Nieto starts to dismantle a lot of this. Uh, in particular, uh, he almost immediately ends the vetting of, of uh, senior Mexican appointees by the United States. Um, th 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 this vetting, by the way, was was full of holes. It certainly wasn't perfect, but it was right. better than nothing. Yeah. Um, now, we can hypothesize why that happened. Uh, to me, it's fairly obvious why it happened. Uh, there was, uh, the, the, there's a lot of, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's a lot of smoke around the possibility that Peña Nieto and his people were simply bought off 
by um, uh, the Sinaloans and a variety of other cartels. It would it would be on brand. I'll put it that way. Um, uh, but as a former president, he'll never be prosecuted for it or meaningfully investigated. Uh, you know, when we get to 2018 and then AMLO comes into power, AMLO is, is uh, you know, I'll, I, I will say this much for him, unlike kind of the um, uh, kind of the stereotypical model of, a, of, a, uh, of an autocrat who's interested in like personal greed and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I mean, AMLO is actually a pretty uh, country living kind of guy. You know, he dresses in guayaberas and, uh, you know, his family's gotten rich. Like his, 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 his uh, so people around him have gotten very rich. He himself doesn't appear to be that interested in that. But, but, but he's an ideologue. He's an ideologue straight out of the 1970s kind of industrial syndicalist left uh, in Mexico. And, uh, and so what he's interested in is the acquisition of power, um, and he also is is sort of this inheritor of this uh, this Mexican nationalist tradition that's very allergic to the United States uh, in a host of different ways. So what we've seen under AMLO is this um, curtailment of cooperation with the U.S. that sort of sort of reached its nadir uh, in early 2021 mm -hmm. when, following the arrest of General Cienfuegos in the United States, he was changing planes at LAX. And was arrested. We, we then sent him back, by the way, like within 30 days, yeah. um, so the Mexicans could investigate him, which I'll put scare quotes around because nothing's <laughs> nothing's happened to the guy. Right. Um, but at that point, uh, formal cooperation with like with like DEA and DOJ and and, uh, and and so forth was effectively legally shut down. Now we have to put an asterisk on all that. Uh, there is some evidence that this cooperation continues. You know, you can talk with individuals within. Um, kind of the ambit of, of uh, the U.S.-Mexico security sphere, and they'll say, yeah, you know, it's just continuing kind of under the table, and, uh, you know, we wouldn't have captured Rafa Cabo Quintero, uh, mm -hmm. which happened, when was that, like six months ago? Um, that wouldn't have happened uh, without American help. Uh, and, uh, and then the capture of Ovidio Guzman about 30 days back, pardon me, like 21 days back, whenever that was, uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have happened without U.S. help. Uh, I believe that. I think that's probably true. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, th these are exceptions to the rule. The reality is that if you if you rewind uh, one decade plus 30 days in the past, uh, as, as we're recording this, uh, you had this picture of a very robust U.S.-Mexico security cooperation yeah. that was probably going to continue um, and that was patterned on the model that eventually succeeded in a place like Colombia. Um, uh, now that's effectively gone. And so, and so the question is, um, for U.S. policymakers, to what extent do we demand that and premise the rest of our relationship upon that cooperation, which, you know, my argument is that we ought to. Um, and the other question that, uh, you know, Mexican decision makers have to ask themselves is, what's it worth to them? Uh, uh, so far, the calculus has been, it has been worth seeing my country fall apart um, versus cooperation with los estadounidenses. Um, uh, but, uh, at, at, at some point we have to hope that, that, uh, that kind of reflexive allergy right. to cooperation has got to change. Right. And we could fill hours talking about the fallout in cooperation between the U S and Mexico. And honestly, even longer talking about this, these new heights of complicity that we've seen with this new administration. Mm -hmm. But now I want to ask you on the U S side, how has the U S policy changed towards Mexico? Uh, well, the, 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 the big challenge uh, in U.S. policy writ large is that it really hasn't changed uh, very much. You've had, uh, since the dawn of the NAFTA era, 1994, mm. um, uh, you've seen a pretty consistent American policy toward Mexico, which is, uh, to, to my mind, uh, pretty excessive deference. Um, a good faith willingness to cooperate, uh, I think, which has been, con you know, continued across administrations. Um, but increasingly, as, as uh, especially in the last decade, as Mexican willingness, uh, official willingness, I should say, mm -hmm. to cooperate has gone down, um, uh, we, writ large, have not adapted uh, with the changed circumstances in Mexico. The only president who kind of broke that pattern was, of course, President Trump. You know, mm -hmm. President Trump, who really was the only one to actually um, even speak of imposing real consequences mm -hmm. upon the Mexican state for failure to cooperate. And so he, uh, I think, stands alone in the past, you know, if you, if you, uh, NAFTA really was not, um, Bill Clinton's achievement. It was, it was, it was something that, that, that took root much earlier. But, uh, so I would, I would argue that since really George HW Bush, you know, coming on to 30, 35 years ago now, uh, uh Donald Trump was the only president to get real results out of, um, out of relations with the Mexican state. Um, but as we know that lasted as long as it lasted. Now we've got a Biden administration that is simply uninterested in, uh, doing anything constructive. Uh, vis-a-vis that. So, so, so our, our obligation, I would argue, 
Um, and I would say this to any policymaker, be on Capitol Hill or in the executive branch or anywhere else, our obligation is um, not to proceed from a standpoint of antagonism, but from a standpoint of realism and understand that uh, you know we have to um, know what our leverage is and we need to be willing to use it. Uh, and, uh, and that means um, ultimately making policy in the interest of the United States first, which in, uh, I would say in the Latin American policy sphere is sometimes the exception more than the rule. So what does that look like exactly? What would you like to see U.S. policy looking like towards Mexico <clears throat> in an ideal world? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's such a gigantic... Uh, it's a lot to uh, unpack. Yeah, yeah. It, it's such a... We should, we should do another podcast uh, yeah. on it. Uh, look, I think, I think the relationship uh, as a whole, and, and, and you know, the, think, about, think about kind of the, kind of the breadth of our relationship. Mm-hmm. Trade uh, between the two countries is absolutely gigantic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so trade, finance transportation, um, uh, people in the U.S. Now, now we in Texas have a little bit of a different perspective, um, uh, but there is, a, uh, there is a set of kind of Mexican elites, uh, mm-hmm. I would say, who really depend upon access to Texas in particular, but to the United States in general, uh, for an array of services, you name it, healthcare, um, uh, banking, education, uh, you, know, you know, if you want to park capital, you, know, yeah. you do it in San Antonio and not in Carretero. Even enjoying their wealth. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so, you know, I've, I've, I've been on what I think of as the shopping flight from Mexico City to San Antonio many, many times. Uh, and I'm the only one who's not, ba- I'm the only one not dressed in designer, uh, <laughs> which shouldn't be too much of a surprise. But I'm also the only one who's not uh, immediately going to like get off the plane and go to the outlets in San Marcos. And, and, and that's great, by the way. You know, the, again, uh, the, all that is positive. That being said, um, uh, if there's not cooperation on security, which has to come first, which should be front and center, uh, then, then in candor, um, this is to answer your question directly, uh, there shouldn't be as much cooperation in everything else. We can no longer uh, depend uh, or premise our policy toward Mexico uh, as, as being in these kind of separable strands. We have, to, we have to link everything to the one thing that's the most important, which is the safety, security, and sovereignty of those of us on the American side. Uh, and if that doesn't exist... If there isn't that cooperation, and you can, we can talk about what the details of that may be. It could be signals intelligence sharing. It could be resumed vetting of senior personnel. There's a whole laundry list of things that it could be. Right. Um, then, then there's no reason for the rest of the relationship to continue as if nothing's wrong. So what would you say to people that may possibly fear retaliation coming from Mexico if we cease to cooperate with them? So obviously, you know, Mexico is not a huge military power. They don't have nuclear weapons, but at the end of the day, they're not completely toothless. So what would you say of people that are scared of maybe that having a heavy burden back on Texas or the U.S.? Well, you know, we, we need to understand, uh, first of all, that nothing, nothing what I've spoken of here uh, is, 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 is military in quality, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so the, the, there is a place for a discussion, which I think will have to be a different podcast on like terror designations for Mexican cartels, right. which I support. But a very complicated topic, so so I will ask that we set it aside for now. Uh, but um, uh, you know, the the, the Mexicans, uh, I think, legitimately uh, will advance their interest, uh, and we have just as legitimate uh, a rationale for advancing ours. But the reality, look, is that uh, in terms of you know, if you want to talk about mutual economic vulnerability, mm. it's asymmetric. And uh, on the United States side, um, in candor, we hold the cards. So. Right. And in the interest of time, I know we're starting to wrap up. One of the last things that I want to ask you, and it's also something that was referenced in Pompeo's book. Sure. But he talked about how so many people seem to defend Mexican sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And there was a time, I believe that it was President Trump, and he... It came out in the media last year Mm -hmm. that at one point he had considered flying drones into Mexico to take out cartels with missiles. Right. And the media just went crazy. The yeah. public went crazy. People went crazy hearing about how this would be overstepping Mexican sovereignty. And there's been a lot of talk about that. Yeah. And not so much talk about Texas sovereignty or U.S. sovereignty. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, uh, th- that's a question to ask, isn't it? What about Texas sovereignty? What about American sovereignty? You know, is the is the is the putative infringement on Mexican sovereignty? Say, you know, for the sake of argument, let's say the United States did send armed drones to uh, destroy drug labs in Sinaloa or mm. Coahuila or Sonora or anywhere else. Um, is that more of an infringement on Mexican sovereignty than is 
the uh, the murder, uh, and I use that word with deliberation, the murder mm -hmm. of uncounted numbers of Americans from fentanyl trafficking coming out of Mexico. Personally, I'd say no. Uh, and so the reason uh, I think that um, the conversation centers upon uh, the, the the other side, as you say, without the discussion of what's been being done in the United States, is is frankly because uh, a lot of our um, what all uh, you know our, our media class in particular, mm -hmm. but not just them, the policy class, has become unaccustomed to reasoning from and speaking from the standpoint of the American interest. First, that doesn't mean you ignore uh, or dismiss other concerns, uh, and certainly Mexicans have a very legitimate case. Uh, as far as sovereignty goes now, as we've discussed in this um, this episode here, uh, I think the deliberate surrender of sovereignty to uh, to the cartels, as you know, Ambassador Landau said, 30 to 40 mm. percent of their own territory, yeah. has kind of answered that question in some ways. Um, uh, it doesn't mean we run roughshod, but at the same time, we've got to start having our conversations, our policy conversations from a standpoint of what's our prerogative and what's best uh, for us on the north side of the Rio Grande. On the final topic of policymaking, sure. what do you think the basis of policymaking should be? For the United States? Yeah. Exactly that. Exactly what, that. What, do, what, what does the United States require for its security and its sovereignty vis-a-vis -vis Mexico? Mexico is not an enemy. The Mexicans are not enemies. Uh, uh, Texas, which I love, is my first allegiance, uh, would not exist without the Spanish heritage, mm. without the Mexican heritage. Um, uh, and so it will always be a neighbor, uh, and it will always uh, command uh, our respect for its uh, amazing cultural contributions. Um, and uh, my hope, and I think the hope of every American of goodwill, is that it will be a power unto itself, uh, possessed of full sovereignty and one of the most productive and industrious nations in the world. But until that day comes, it's not here right now, uh, we must act to defend our homes, our communities, and our neighbors. And that should be the focus of policymaking. Great. Well, thank you, Josh. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you, Josh. And thank you for everyone that's listening. This is The Hard Country, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.